Hello, hello. We're jumping into John chapter 2, taking a look at Jesus' life and, and trying to pull some little nuggets out so that we can get to know him and receive him into our own lives a little bit better. Uh, John 2 is a great chapter. Uh, Jesus has just met some of his disciples. He's met Andrew, Peter, Philip, um, Nathan, or is it Nathaniel? Can't remember. Sorry, Nathaniel or Nathan. I think it's Nathan. We'll, we'll call him Nate. There you go. Um, and John the Baptist gassed him up in chapter one saying, this is the Lamb of God. This guy is it. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. You know, he's coming after me, but he was before me talking about that he's existed for all time, which is a crazy claim. Um, Jesus would go on to make the same claim saying before Moses, I am, which is nuts. Nobody can claim that except for God himself. But chapter 2 is a pretty fun chapter. You know, it says the, the third day. So Jesus has been hanging out with these dudes, this little crew of fishermen from Galilee. And on the third day, they all go to a wedding together. So you have to keep in mind there's a great book called Twelve Ordinary Men. It kind of breaks down the disciples and their relationship with Jesus. Jesus most likely knew these guys before he hung out with them and called them. They, they at least knew of each other. Jesus knew of Andrew and Peter. I'm sure he bought fish from them. I'm sure he's, he'd done work for them at some point. Especially when it came, if Jesus was a carpenter, crafting boats, fixing things up, all that stuff. I'm sure that they'd interacted before. And I think it's cool that they all got invited to the same wedding. So it's like, when, when you're thinking about change in the world or trying to love and serve people, you, don't, you usually don't have to look that far. Sometimes you can look around and think, you know, when you go to a wedding next time, look around, you know. Who are the younger guys or girls there that maybe you could walk and talk to and care for and love and have a vision for their life greater than they have for themselves? Because that's what Jesus did. And he changed the world. So they go to this wedding. Jesus' mother's there. And like, it, like all good moms, she is... Um, she is selling her son out for free. <laughs> so they run out of wine, which is a big uh-oh at a wedding, right? If you've ever been to a wedding and it's like, oh, there's no more alcohol, uh, it can definitely be a damper on the celebration. So they run out of wine and Jesus, his, his mom, Jesus doesn't do anything, but his mom's like, oh, my son can fix this. <laughs> and Jesus' response is hilarious. He says, woman, why do you bother me with this? Ah, uh, he he definitely gets frustrated with his mom. So if you've ever been frustrated with your parents, maybe your mom's tried to sell out your skills for free. My mom's done it in the past. It's like my son does video work. I'm like, ah, Laura, <laughs> why do you why do you bother me with this? Don't bring me into this. And I have to cut together some slideshow for her friend, which I'm happy to do it. And Jesus, in this case, is happy to do it too, and definitely over delivers. So she just ignores his comments, says, do whatever he says. And um, the servants go to him, and he, he tells them to grab these, uh, these wash basins. It's like a, essentially mop buckets. And uh, he says, hey, bring those here. And they're pretty heavy, and they're pretty big. They, they, they each hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water, John records. And there's six of them. He has them fill them all the way up to the brim, and then he has them take some of the water out and... and and, and give it to the master 
of this wedding. I think it's like the father of the bride or something like that. The guy that's putting it on. And he tastes the wine. Or he tastes his water. I'm sure the servants are a little nervous. Like, oh, this is like mop bucket stuff. It reminds me of that scene. Sorry, this is an awful movie, but super bad. Where he puts the alcohol in the detergent bottles. It's like very interesting. Anyways, besides the point, getting off track. They give this wine to the master and he's blown away. It's like usually you serve the crappy wine first, then you bring out the, or serve the great wine first, and then you bring out the crappy stuff. But this stuff is unbelievable. Because typically you would serve the, the higher end, high shelf alcohol first. And then once everybody's a little, a little tipsy, you would kind of bring out the lower end stuff because people can't really enjoy it as much or tell the difference. But in this case, this guy's blown away by this mop bucket wine. And what's even wilder, I've never noticed this when I've read this hundreds of times. I've never noticed this, but 20 gallons, 30 gallons per bucket, six buckets. That's like 120, 100, 180, let's say 150 to split the middle. 150 gallons of wine. That is insane. Think about... Think about how much, how many gallons your your car holds, right? Just a pump, you know, you pump like fifteen gallons, and it takes what? <laughs> takes like two minutes to pump fifteen gallons, just like coming out, coming out, coming out, and it's so expensive. Twenty or what was it? Fifteen gallons of wine. This is an insane amount of wine. It reminds me of that Michael Scott clip where it's the Christmas episode. Again, I'm using all these awful analogies because, I don't know, they're not very, quote-unquote, PC Christian. But, hey, man, Jesus just turned 15 gallons of water into 15 gallons of wine for this wedding where people have already been raging. That's pretty insane and pretty intense and pretty cool, honestly. Because I don't know. There's no way they drank all that wine. I guarantee they, they had leftovers, and this is a tiny picture of kind of the multiplying the bread and the fish. But it reminds me of the office clip where Michael Scott goes, uh, he's trying to liven up the party, and he goes to the, the liquor store or the gas station, and he's like, he asks the clerk, he says, you think this will be enough to get, um, get uh, 15 people drunk? And the clerk, then the camera zooms out, and the clerk looks down at what Michael's buying, he says, 15 bottles of vodka? Yeah, that should do it. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. And that's what Jesus does here. He, he, he blows it up in terms of oh, 15 gallons of wine. It's nuts. Man, I got so caught up in the wedding story. I'm trying to even remember what else happens in chapter 2. Ah, next we move straight into the Passover. So then they go and celebrate the Passover. Um, and they all go to Jerusalem for that. And Jesus goes into the temple. He's been there many times. And he lets out some frustration. This is kind of where, where his time has begun. Things are starting to roll. And people, I'm sure, heard about the miracle at the wedding. So I'm sure, you know, there's a little bit of buzz about who Jesus is. And I'm sure people, John the Baptist had a good following. So when he's gassing Jesus up, other people are hearing that too. So Jesus is chilling in the temple, and he, he, he makes, sits down, and he makes a, a, a whip, 
A lot of people say that and they freak out, but it's a, it's a whip of, what is it, a whip of chords? And I guess if you translate it correctly, I, I, I got this from Tim Keller, but it's like this little, you know, there's like long leaves on the trees that you would play, you know, you get home from school, you'd be walking home from the school bus, and you'd grab a few of them off and you'd like whip your buddies with them. But they didn't hurt at all because they were so flimsy. Essentially, that's what Jesus used. He fashioned a whip out of these cords, out of these, these, these flimsy leaves. So it wasn't really doing any damage to anybody. It was like waving around one of those leaves things at your friends. It's kind of scary, if anything. <laughs> it just kind of freaks you out a little bit. And it's probably a crazy sight to see this guy waving this whip around and kind of flipping tables over and changes pouring out. And he's like, yo, quit selling doves here. And his frustration it lies in the fact that these people have made his father's house a place of transaction, a place of trade. Don't, don't do that. This is my father's house. It's not supposed to be a place for trade. Jesus doesn't want, because I think what had happened to a lot of these folks, and they didn't even realize it or notice it, is that their relationship with God had become so transactional. I'll be good if you help me. If you help me, I'll be good. If you don't help me, I'll be bad. Like it's this transaction, and that's not how relationships work. I mean, they do to an extent, but it's really sad when that's all that the relationship operates off of to these people. And it turned entirely transactional. It was about the moolah, about the cash. It was no longer about the intimacy between them and the Father, them and their God, the living God that lived in this temple. It wasn't a relationship anymore. And when I say relationship, I know it can get cheesy when people are like, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And when I say relationship, I mean like a family relationship, a non-transactional relationship. That's what I mean, that you don't have to do things to impress God. That in sacrificing, you're not, you're not making things right between yourself and God. You are, you are admitting your fault and you're coming to him as a father saying, dad, I've messed up. This isn't right. This isn't working. I want to listen to you. But instead, we kind of turned it into this commercialized, commercialized, transactional event. You give a little, get a little. That's not how, that's not how the Father operates. And unfortunately, I think we, we operate like this in a lot of our relationships even. It's very transactional but not in a giving way, not in a, a caring way, but just in a selfish way. Because I think ultimately all relationships are quote-unquote transactional, but the beauty, beautiful thing about families and covenants and, and love is that there's no expectation in the giving, and that's what, that's what Jesus ultimately brings. He pours out his love, he pours out his truth with nothing, with, with, without expectation in return. There's a great quote by Steve Brown. It's like, God, what is it? Oh, it's like, the people who understand God's love are those that know, and the, the, the people that truly change are the ones that understand God loves them even if they don't. 
That's what causes and creates real change, is understanding that God's love and care for you will not change, will, will not change even if you don't change. That's what causes change. It's so ironic and it's, it's, it's weird. And that's something to wrestle through. You can think about that for a few hours. But I love the picture here that Jesus gets frustrated. He shows what he cares about. He starts off his mission by doing, by, well, multiplying wine. And then we see 150 gallons. He's got the power. Speeds up the fermentation process by like a long time. And then we see him drive out people and reorient their view of who God is and what his house is supposed to be. I think that's really interesting that Jesus starts off things that way. He starts it strong. And we'll see that he ends in a similar manner, actually. Where he flips some tables and gets frustrated again. He says, uh, you know, I'll tear this temple down in three days and raise it. Or I'll tear this temple down and raise it in three days. And this is actually the phrase that they caught him on. This is what they arrested him for and accused him to kill him ultimately on the cross. They said, well, he said that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. This is one of the accusations they brought against him. But Jesus from the get-go understood his purpose, what he had to accomplish. And he was passionate about it. He flipped some tables tried to care for people. Helped out not just a little bit, but a lot. So yeah, where in your life do you feel like maybe you could get a little bit spicy, you know? Maybe you could not whip people, but get a little ridiculous in terms of what you care about. And it might turn some heads, but making people mad sometimes works pretty well. And I think it's good to have an end goal first. Something that you, that you want to stand firm on. Something about three years out. And then get a little spicy towards that goal. I don't know. I think that's fun and helpful. But anyways, love y'all. Talk to you later.